The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Sportbox. Here are your headlines today. Global equities cheer a soft U.S. inflation print, with the S&P 500 seeing its best day since April after consumer prices flatline in October. Siemens Energy secures a 15 billion euro rescue package, with the German government set to provide funding guarantees. The CEO Kristen Brook joins us as the group publishes its quarterly results. The yuan hits a two-month peak after factory output and retail sales top multi-month highs, while the Chinese central bank injects more cash to support the economy. And the risk of a U.S. government shutdown abates after the House passes a stopgap funding bill, sending new Speaker Mike Johnson's laddered measure to the Senate. We would like to do it as soon as possible. Uh, both McConnell and I want to avoid a shutdown. So getting this done, obviously, before Friday midnight. Welcome to the show. We've got numbers crossing from Siemens Energy today, and this is earnings on the back of what was a, a fairly mighty rescue package yesterday drafted by the German government. So just diving into the numbers today, the uh, company providing us with uh, effective numbers, showing us that uh, what we've got on uh, Siemens Gamesa, if I can just start there, Siemens Gamesa, and this has been the, the root of some of the, the problems which has now prompted the intervention by the government. Siemens Gamesa expected to post two billion euro loss before special items in 2024. In terms of the Q4 loss on uh, Siemens Energy as a result, Q4 loss before special items 487 million euros versus 564 million profit a year earlier. Uh, the company saying break-even at the wind division, Siemens Gamesa, now expected in fiscal 2026. So that will be a waiting game when it comes to that particular part of the business. Q4 sales at uh, Siemens Energy down 7.2% at 8.5 billion euros versus 8.6 billion LSEG data estimate. Let's uh, now just get a little bit more colour around the numbers and around this rescue package. Christian Brook joins us, the CEO of Siemens Energy, and of course, Aneta, our colleague, also joining the conversation today. Christian, thank you so much for jumping on the line to speak to us on the back of numbers. Let's just first talk about this uh, German government package, 7.5 billion euros in state guarantees to try and shore up the business. What sort of shape, what sort of position does this put Siemens Energy in? Yeah, good morning. Thanks very much for having me. First of all, I think it's super, super, super important that everybody understand what this package is about. It's back guarantees from the government. There's no cash, right? We pay money for this back guarantee. So it's like an insurance package. And uh, normally you pay money to the government on, an, on a rate which is even above the commercial market. And the guarantees at the end will be provided together in a consortium with banks. These guarantees are meant to back secure customers in terms of prepayments, execution of contracts and so forth. So it's a relatively normal instrument in the industry. However, because of the size of our order book, which is beyond 112 billion in the meantime, obviously we are so big, big that obviously for the financial market, they, they look on it and have the concern of a cluster risk. This is why this package was needed and we are very grateful for the government of structuring it together with the banks and Siemens AG support. But it's also, I think, really, really important that people understand that it's not 
cash, and this is also under European law. This is not state aid or anything like this. Um, so I think there was a lot of misperception around this package. It is important to continue the growth, and the guarantees will largely go to the grid business, to the other non-wind businesses, uh, to secure this enormous growth which comes with the energy transition. So you fleshed out what you see this is state aid or state, well you say state guarantees I should say, and you characterise what it is at this point. Can I just get to what it means though for the overall business because there are a series of issues that have cropped up. It's not just been one issue. Quality control issues have of course been cited, but the industry has had a, a funding issue when it comes to renewables. We know inflation has very much impacted the cost base, contracts that have been inked for the longer term. As we talk about the business now where there have been issues around the wind division, not expected to break even until fiscal 2026. What sort of bridge are we talking about when it comes to the state support? No, uh, once again, I mean, first of all, you always have to see Siemens Energy has, let's say, multiple parts of business. 30% is wind, 70% is, is other technologies like grid, like gas, like hydrogen and so forth, which are doing extraordinary good. Wind is painful in terms of turning it around. And as you said, there's a couple of elements. The one thing is quality issues in the onshore business, so wind turbines on land, uh, which needs to be fixed. And this is obviously, as we communicated in quarter three, a multi-billion exercise over the next years to come. And this will obviously also continue to burden the results going forward. At the same time, we are ramping up four factories at the moment to cope up with the, um, to keep up with the massive growth in offshore, so the wind turbines in sea, at sea. Uh, and this goes slower than we expected in terms of how many turbines do we get out into the field. And uh, this was also a negative result in 23, and this will also burden the results in 24 still. We do expect break even in the wind business overall between onshore, offshore and the service business there in 2026. Uh, we obviously uh, will be halfway through that next year. This is what we expect. Um, but we also obviously then thereafter, once we have worked through the very painful backlog, what we have, which have all these elements, as you mentioned, inflation, uh, too low cost considered uh, over the next two years. And this is why then for 26, we feel uh, well set up to really turn around the wind business. Christian Asinetti here in Berlin. Um, I mean, your equity story hinges on uh, whether you can turn around the wind business. And my question would be, what do your clients actually say? Do they still order your windmills, given the quality issues? Or what are you telling them? Um, so the order outlook is my question, essentially. Yeah, I mean, first of all, you always have to differentiate between onshore and offshore. Offshore has no quality issue whatsoever. Uh, we're a market leader in offshore. Um, we have a massive order intake in 2023 in offshore. We sit on a strong order book. So that is, uh, uh, I would say, work in progress. At the same time, we see generally in the offshore industry a dip. You have seen our customers going out, cancelling projects. You see that the balance between the auction design and, and what is really needed doesn't work out at the moment. And this needs to be refurbished when we want to make offshore business successful as an industry, not as Siemens Energy, but as, as an industry. On the onshore side, we at least halted for the time being the sale of uh, the, what we call 5X onshore platform. There is a break and we will see obviously in 2024 a very low order intake on that side, simply because we're only going to restart the full-fledged sale once the quality packages are clarified and how we implement this. This is undergoing at the moment, so we expect this to 
be, uh, let's say, reintroduced relatively soon. Our customers are actually waiting for it. I mean, we have very open and transparent discussions with them. I think they do appreciate the openness and transparency. However, obviously, I think as an industry, we need to make sure that the bounty conditions allow really a commercial viable business. And this is where I think the whole industry is struggling to really turn around the wind business to a planable, successful, profitable industry. But the gas business, but also the grid business also could see higher profitability. So what are you planning on doing there to actually boost profitability so that your shareholders will benefit from it? Yeah, we will uh, next week have also our capital market day where we explain a bit on what we're going to do there. Definitely, first of all, the grid business compared to a year ago, we plan it much faster growing. Um, so that is a very positive development. The margins in the backlog look very, very promising. It's a strong business. We will also um, continue to expand capacities to keep up with this growth. We will need to do that. Uh, and obviously, you also see that we are strengthening our portfolio. We uh, sell certain parts which we long-term do not see profitable and uh, focus on other areas to either increase capacity or drive partnerships of building the future portfolio in the grid business. On gas, this is very much a service uh, story and decarbonization story for the new units. So we do a lot in terms of, for example, hydrogen use in gas turbines. We've demonstrated the first 100% hydrogen operated gas turbine in Europe. Um, and we will continue to do so to make sure that gas is really a transition technology and is possible to be decarbonized going forward. Uh, Christian, good morning to you there, now Rebilla here in studio. Just uh, between yourselves then and, 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 and Siemens, just shaping and providing stability to accelerate that separation in India. Let's talk about those operations exactly. What is your thinking behind the acceleration in separating, particularly in that part of the world? Yeah, first of all, keep in mind this uh, India setup was driven when we did the spin-off by administrative really restrictions. So we knew that at one point in time, we need to untangle the Siemens AG and Siemens Energy business in India. For both of us, uh, India is a super important market and we want to be very prominent present there. Uh, India is not only important for us because of the Indian business, but also helping global businesses uh, to be executed. And in that regard, this agreement accelerates this separation of the two businesses, so Siemens AG and Siemens Energy. It prepones certain things and really starts this process over, it will still be a multi-year process of completely untangling it, but this is what it's all about. And uh, it doesn't change the way on how we operate our business in India and that we will also continue to drive growth in India from our side because it is for us an extremely important future market. Has this also created, though, a, a dent maybe in the industry, a lack of trust maybe in the ability to uh, complete, uh, especially in the wind sector, just some of the contracts and some of the projects that are in place? Has it made a dent in that? Has it created a lack of trust in this industry? But also then you also had uh, um, your, parent, your former parent company having that board meeting yesterday. Were there any perhaps uh, conditions set forward by them? No, I mean, first of all, it should not have created a concern or, or as you said, dent in the industry. I mean, we continue to, to execute all of our projects. Uh, obviously, we're, let's say, a big company with a lot of capable workforce. But I think if it comes to the wind industry, what we need to discuss as an industry are the boundary conditions. Is that something which is really allowing long-term profitable growth? 
Keep in mind, the wind industry has not only been impacted by inflation, but also by rising interest rates, by sometimes not easy auction designs. And that is something, obviously, what we need to make sure um, going forward, that, that this works out. Um, and uh, obviously, uh, in that regard, I think uh, we will need to work on it. But um, I have not heard any other, let's say, bigger concerns. And obviously, we received continuous order and we continue to execute also. Christian, the hedge funds have been shorting stocks in your sector for a while now. They're concerned about all the mix of events we've been talking about earlier in this interview. Can you give us an industry perspective without further state intervention? Are we looking at casualties in the renewable space, given the experience you've just been through? Well, I can only judge, obviously, for our company. And obviously, what's very, very clear, it's a painful, painful turnaround story. However, I mean, honestly, if I look back two years, everybody asked me, when do you close down gas and when do you sell the rest? And probably grid will never work. And I think we have demonstrated as a company also on how to turn around difficult businesses. And honestly, the problems what I see in wind is unfortunately pretty similar. It's about quality, it's about how you manage the factory, it's about executing, how do you design contracts. The unfortunate thing, it, it takes time in this industry because you have multi-years execution. And obviously, I think this is why obviously people are looking on this industry also with interest. I mean, if, if hedge funds are interested, it also means there is something in this industry. Companies like ours are undervalued seeing the potential going forward. And uh, we have not been good enough yet in terms of really extracting that value, what we have in the company, in terms of earnings, in terms of share price. And this is where we need to focus on going forward. And for us, it is fixing the wind. The rest has delivered ahead of the targets, 70% of the revenue. The pain is, at the moment, it gets eaten up by all the difficulties in wind. Um, and I think I see somewhat similar structures in, in other companies where we as an industry have to come to terms to make it a long-term, sustainable, profitable growth industry, which I think is possible. But certain bounty conditions in renewables absolutely also need to, um, need to change. Right. But I see also a lot of moves in the right direction. Christian, thank you so much for joining us today. We very much appreciate your time on what is a, a very big day a for pleasure. the company. Christian Brook with us, the CEO of Siemens Energy. And a big thank you to Annette, our colleague, joining us for the interview as well. Germany's constitutional court will this morning rule on whether the government infringed its debt breaks when it allocated unused emergency COVID relief funds for unrelated spending projects, principally its climate and transformation fund. Should the court rule against the government, it could see as much as 60 billion euros pulled from its future funding plans and have the debt break, which limits the federal budget deficit to just 0.35% of GDP, imposed on its renewable energy spending. With the German government facing challenges on several fronts, be it corporate, fiscal or political, we will be hearing from the man sitting across from Olaf Scholz in the Bundestag. Don't miss Annette's exclusive interview with the leader of Germany's Christian Democrats, that is Friedrich Merz, today at 10.15 CET. Now coming up on the show, October's flat CPI print sends markets into rally mode. We'll break down Tuesday's action for you also. Coming up, then Renault Family launches its electric vehicle unit, Ampere. But flat EV demand, as well as Chinese competition, forces it to temporarily unplug IPO plans. And on the back of Siemens Energy's rescue deal that we've just been speaking about, we'll also get earnings from its UK peer, SSE, this morning. And 
hear from the CEO, Alistair Phillips-Davies. That's coming up at 8 a.m. CET. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. U.S. October consumer prices came in flat on the month, lower than the 0.1% figure markets had penciled in and way down on September's 40 basis point increase. That put the yearly figure below estimates too, up 3.2% and well down on September's 3.7% jump. Energy prices helped keep those figures down, falling 2.5% on the month. Even stripping out the volatile food and energy sectors, the inflation figures were surprisingly soft, with core CPI dipping to 4% on the year. The CME Fed watch tool now shows a 94.5% probability the Fed keeps rates unchanged at its December meeting. That is near 25 percentage point jump in the space of a month. Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsby fans speculation that the Fed would hold, noting the drop in CPI inflation from around 6.3% in January puts the US on track for its fastest one-year peacetime decline in over four decades. Now, monumental moves, really, we saw as a result. Investors taking one piece of data, and don't forget, and many years ago, uh, investors used to talk about not taking one piece of data too uh, seriously and waiting for a whole series of information. But uh, the one data point, just again, confirmation that uh, now you've got a tamer inflation, enough so that perhaps the Fed has done when it comes to rate hikes. And you saw the rally unlocked on markets. There's been an element of re-rating around monetary policy in the past two weeks. Some of that had started to fade ahead of the numbers back in uh, the, the same vein as what we saw. Markets rallying very aggressively, 2.3% to the upside for the Nasdaq. In terms of big moving stocks, Tesla, momentum name, don't forget Tesla. Tesla was one of the big ones for the Nasdaq and the S&P 500. Another big driver on markets yesterday was Home Depot, out of numbers. That was a, a real prop for the Dow as well. But across the board, you saw a rally, all sectors positive. Real estate, very uh, interest rate sensitive part of the market, was up more than 5% energy though at the laggard so uh, markets very much reacting the banks as well take a look at the banks and some of this was a story around the yield story and you could see uh, the concerns that have been in the marketplace around some of these names 9.8 percent higher for key corp eight percent for zion and first horizon also rallying as well I want to take you to Treasuries. We saw a fairly significant movement on this market too. Two-year Treasury yields, they were down 22 basis points on the session. You can see 4.83 where we've dwindled to, so well off that 5% mark as investors now pricing this expectation around rates. Some saying a cut now as early as May and no more rate hikes. Of course, 4.43, so we're below the 4.5% level. We fell about 19 odd basis points in that uh, session and uh, effectively the biggest revision, the biggest drop we've had in that yield since Silicon Valley Bank filed uh, for bankruptcy. So the market's saying that yield story very much tackled. And don't forget that just also glosses over a lot of the concerns the market has had around the debt position out of the United States. So the refunding process for Treasury at one stage very much in focus, don't forget, a couple of weeks back. But now with this cycle around inflation and interest rates, 
it has done some heavy lifting when it comes to that yield at the long end. I want to take you to the dollar, which has been one of the big casualties overnight. Morning session, you can see sterling euro just suffering as dollars try to claw back some territory, but it has been one in the 24-hour window for risk on currencies. We're 124.92, so just shy of 125. That's the territory we've closed the gap on. 108.75 on euro dollar. Dollar yen rates are back below 151. You can see 150.63 and dollar yuan 7.24. Arabile. Oh, the Asian markets quickly. Uh, this is how they look. You can see uh, very strong gains for the Hong Kong market, 3.2 odd percent to the upside, 2% gain for the Cosby. But right across the region, we are seeing some enthusiasm again for risk assets, Arabile. Yeah, certainly a lot of that enthusiasm also coming from that CPI print, right, across the board. And Jumana has actually been at the UBS European Conference here in London and spoke to former St. Louis Fed President James Bullard uh, uh, just before the data. Jumana, I mean, that print having come out, of course, yes, after the interview, but clearly the questions around the end of this hiking era would have been uh, very paramount and, and significant to all market players. Good morning, guys. Well, let's go back to what Karen was saying at the walls. I think uh, we wouldn't have in the past put so much emphasis on one single print. And yet, that is exactly what happened yesterday. We had the both the headline, the core, and even I read one statistic saying core CPI adjusted for rent, which has been quite sticky, has already come in at 2%, which means that the market was very, very quick to price out the probability of the Fed going for one last rate hike in December. There's pretty much nothing priced in for December. But what I thought was also interesting is going into that print yesterday, you had about 85 basis points worth of cuts priced in for the full calendar year 2024. We're now sitting at 110 just after one print. And that tells you that the market has really got ahead of itself in terms of anticipating those rate cuts and what the Fed's next move is going to be. So as you said, Arabila, I had the chance to speak to the um, former president of the St. Louis Fed, that is James Bullard. This was before the print. And he was saying to me that we should not remove the possibility of an upside surprise to inflation, not necessarily at yesterday's print, but at some point in the future. And therefore, because of that, there is still going to be pressure on the Fed to keep rates higher for longer. And so then I said to him, but that hasn't stopped the markets from pricing and rate cuts. Let's listen to what he said. The chair at one point said we're not even thinking about thinking about right. uh, doing that. Um, I think it is premature. I think he gave the right statement on that. Uh, I think uh, you'd have to see inflation come down uh, more uh, than it already has, and then the committee could make a judgment at that point. But if you have my forecast uh, of trend growth in GDP, there wouldn't really be any impetus to cut rates until you got close, much closer to 2%. Mm. So inflation, now, headline inflation. Wall Street thinks inflation is going to continue to come down and we'll mm. be around 2% mm. in the third quarter of next year. Well, I guess let me put the question to you. What would you need to see if you were still a voting member? What would you need to see in order for you to think, okay, maybe it's time to start thinking about rate cuts now? I think you have to have a two-handle on core PC inflation. Mm. Um, and if you had a two-handle on two core PCE and declining, then, uh, then you could start thinking about you know, what your next move mm -hmm. might be. But um, you know, why cut rates if you don't think you're go going into recession? So this, this rate cut talk is wrapped up with the idea that there's also a recession coming. Yeah. Um, and certainly the Fed would react to a recession, but those are pretty hard to predict. And uh, the third quarter of 2023, 
you know, was supposed to be a recession. We're supposed to, we're supposed to have been in a recession right now. Instead, the economy reaccelerated. Yeah, uh, we uh, obviously, you know, we talk about the uh, cumulative amount of rate hikes that the Fed has delivered. But at the same time, what has happened is long-term bond yields have, have also gone up as well. To your mind, does that take the pressure off the Fed in terms of delivering future rate hikes just because of the extent of monetary and financial conditions that have been tightened due to longer bond yields moving up as well? Yeah, I haven't liked uh, going with financial conditions as a, as a measure of the current state of monetary policy because they are highly volatile, uh, especially if, to the extent those indexes have uh, equity prices as part of their story. Um, the Fed has historically said that they don't want to react to equity prices. You know, the problem is you just get thrown off. You know, it's one month to the next, or one even one week or one day to the next. Uh, and so I th I think it's better to look at more fundamental data that isn't as volatile when you're trying to think about the proper place for monetary policy. Now, you remember the last FMC press conference, the Fed Chair Jerome Powell said it isn't even time to start thinking about rate cuts. But of course, the market uh, didn't take that for granted. And we are pricing in more than 100 basis points for next year. And I think the question that I put to Mr. Bullard is actually relevant for all central banks around the world. If they are telling us that they're going to stay in this higher for longer environment, at what point will their thinking change? At what point will they transition to actually start preparing the market for interest rate cuts? And what Mr. Bullard said to me is they're focused on two things. One, that core PCE number, which, as we know, is the Fed's preferred gauge. That's still sitting at 3.7 percent. And the other is their forecast of where the economy is going and whether they're actually going to be forecasting a recession. He doesn't see a recession at this point. He actually said the line, why should you cut if you don't forecast a recession? So those two things are going to be hand in hand. And of course, don't forget the U.S. and the Fed, they do have a dual mandate of both price stability and the unemployment rate. You can't say the same for other, um, other central banks around the world, which means that markets are going to continue to test these central banks and will continue to price in higher and more aggressive rate cuts, assuming these inflation prints do continue to trend lower. So very insightful commentary, I thought, from uh, Fed Bullard's, uh, well, former Fed Bullard's, about how they're thinking about the economy and what are the key metrics to look at going forwards. Jamana, thank you very much for that interview. I do think terrific insights. Uh, there was a time we spoke to Bullard around the set, and this was before we'd seen the rate hiking cycle. Yeah. And he was uh, effectively calling what would need to take place to, to see those rate hikes. So interesting to hear him talk about what would be necessary to see rate cuts and effectively that core PCE. We're a mile off the 2% handle, 3.7% at the last read. So a, a two-handle not in sight at this stage. It certainly aren't. And, and there is that chance then, right, that indeed things could actually spike up again. And so if that was to happen, what does that say for the market? Is the chance on the other side now, where we've seen, of course, bond yields uh, retreat so much over the last day, and then yesterday we then saw, of course, the equity market push higher, is there is the risk of moving the other way now even greater with consensus now moving towards, I mean, the first hike is already, uh, the first cut already put into the market at 3% for January. 
Nice. So, interesting. Well, China has reported better than expected retail sales and industrial output in October and a potential sign of economic recovery. Meanwhile, the PBOC boosted liquidity in the financial system. Let's get out to Sam for more. Sam, uh, the data coming as uh, President Xi Jinping arrives in the US uh, for the first time in six years. But, of course, they do not go with superior economic data at this point, even with a glimmer of hope today. Good morning to you, Karen. Yeah, and we've been talking to analysts about this uh, today, certainly in terms of these two key events that are playing out with the economic data and President Xi Jinping's visit to the US, of course, and how it's going to be a really hard sell for him in terms of trying to continue to convince uh, foreign businesses that uh, China is a good place to park their money uh, and to invest right now at a time when we are seeing uh, certainly a lot of uncertainties around the Chinese economy. Uh, the data today did look uh, very encouraging as far as the headline is concerned. Uh, but what it is telling us is that while the recovery is certainly underway, confidence still is fragile. The bright spots certainly were consumption and manufacturing. The retail sales, perhaps not so surprising because we did have that uh, spending domestically during the Golden Week holiday. Manufacturing a little bit surprising given we did see disappointing reads on PMI uh, and export. Um, but when you look at the fixed asset investment, that was really the weak spot and that was largely dragged down by the continued problems and the struggling housing market, property investment uh, certainly there in, in that sector. Um, but economists do remain cautious. They say that the year-on-year -year numbers that we're dealing with perhaps aren't a true reflection of the momentum in terms of the recovery right now because of the base effects. We've got to remember China uh, was still dealing with lockdowns around this time last year. Uh, and so if you look at the month-on-month numbers, it's quite telling, quite interesting. Uh, retail sales only growing 0.07%. Uh, so in that sense, uh, there are still a lot of expectations that we continue to see uh, more support coming through by the government. Uh, no change to the medium term lending facility rate today, as you mentioned, uh, that typically acts as a guide for the loan prime rate. But there are continued growing expectations in the market of perhaps a triple R cut uh, before year end. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.